This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right, so this morning we heard in the Mass, it, it read, What I say to you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And yesterday, I tried to suggest to you that what we're here doing now and this week and in the time that remains has something to do with this exhortation, with this proclamation of things heard in the secret of the heart in public on the rooftops. And I suggested yesterday that this takes quite a lot of thinking. How to do that. How to participate in this extension of the work of St. Dominic and the Friars Preachers. How to be a voice of uplift and encouragement to your fellow students and professors, your fellow citizens and family members and, and friends. <clears throat> this deliberation is deliberation about a particular end. It's a, the end in sight is a work of mercy. Now you may not think of it this way, but traditionally we understand proclamation as a work of mercy. A work of mercy um, is most vividly in our minds something like clothing the, and housing the homeless, feeding the hungry. But there are what there is uh, another set of acts of mercy, spiritual acts of mercy. Acts of mercy that seek to fill up what's lacking, not in, with respect to the body, but with respect to the soul. And when you look out um, at the world, what the, what the Lord, through the gift of wisdom, is urging you to see is um, how lost and how lonely and how confused are so many of your peers. It's by mercy that we are moved to proclaim what the Lord, as the gospel says, whispers to us, to speak in the light what we hear in the darkness, the darkness of faith. Okay, so... This, as I said, requires quite a lot of thinking. It's not obvious how we're meant to go about this work of proclamation. And for this too, I'm going to suggest today we need the help of a gift. Now to, to set that up, to, to begin talking to you about this specific gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of counsel, I need to talk first about the virtue that this gift aids and perfects. The gift, that's the virtue of prudence. 
So what I'm going to do is talk to you a minute about prudence. Specifically, I'm going to talk about its act, about what, what prudence does. And then uh, we will examine what I, I'm calling today the limits of reason. But I'm going to talk about what I'm, what I'm calling here the limits of reason. That is to say the things that uh, routinely interfere with, short circuit, or pose obstacles to our right deliberation about the best way of pursuing the ends that God has given us to pursue. And then uh, in light of those, those difficulties, we will be able to see more clearly the, what our need for the gift of counsel is. And I think I'm going to be able to do this somewhat quickly in order to leave plenty of time for, for questions and answers, okay? All right, here we go. So prudence, what is it? It's, a, it's about human affairs. It's a kind of practical wisdom. It has to do with the kind of thinking you do when you're deliberating about what to do how best and how best to do it. It's, it has to do with specifically right judgment about the means that are best suited to the ends given us by the other virtues. So I want to, to act justly. I want to live temperately, but it's not evident always, is it? what justice requires of us or how to bring it about. Prudence is the virtue that's, that is concerned with working all that out. It's about things to be done. That's its matter. The thing on which it bears. It has to do most specifically with actions, that in singular matters, and I'll say something about that. As Thomas says, it's necessary for the prudent man to know both the universal principles of reason and the singulars about which actions are concerned. So think of it like this. Everything you do, the idea here is, every practical judgment you render, every decision you make, insofar as it issues from a, some bit of deliberation, is, com is essentially comprised of three movements, or three aspects, three elements. On the one hand, you have a universal principle. Here's one. Just injustice must not be done. Injustice is to be avoided. There's a universal principle. It's, what it says is, in every circumstance whatsoever, justice is to be pursued and injustice is to be shunned or fled. Second, you have the conjunction of that universal principle with a singular or a particular. That particular goes like this. This thing that I could do is unjust. 
So I have this universal principle, injustice is to be fled. I have a particular judgment about some immediate circumstance or course of action, namely that this particular course of action would be unjust. And therefore, and from this universal principle in conjunction with this singular judgment, I draw a practical conclusion that I ought not to do this thing that I could do. Now, the point here isn't that, you know, like, like Dr. Spock or C-3PO, you represent your own mental, uh, your own practical deliberation to yourself in this way, though sometimes you may. But it's just to say that insofar as we are engaged in the work of practical reasoning as perfected by prudence, our thinking works this way. And what I'm trying to do is, is bring into focus the specific aspects of that thinking in order, so that we can get clear about the relations. All right. So what happens in, when we are exercising prudence? Well, Thomas sees that we have, that prudence involves three acts, three stages of the deliberative, deliberative pro process. First, he calls counsel. So we've been talking yesterday about how best to order your chap your local chapter. And Ben gave, he just nailed it. He gave this great talk yesterday and just and broke it down for you and gave you um, and delivered up the fruit of his own experience and practical reasoning about how best to do what in, on a very practical level, what it is you're doing as leaders of the Thomistic Institute on your campuses. All that, um, all the counsel he gave you is collated or gathered up from a number of sources. And these are sources that you, in virtue of being a human being, are intimately familiar with. One of those sources of counsel is memory. Okay, I'm thinking about something to do. How would how I go about it? Well, um, you know, if I remember, like the last hundred times I tried this, it didn't work. And, you know, that would be a, a, a helpful thing um, in order to uh, render a judgment about what not to do. So prudence always entails... Um, it's integral to prudence that there be some um, reference to memory. We have we look to the past in order to judge the present, um, in order to make some estimation of what we ought to do in the future. Another uh, source of judgment prob uh, has to do with probabilities, right? We we and for the most part, this all just kind of is a that's a happy fact in our lives, and we only rarely ask questions about such things, but we have at our disposal a broad set of assumptions about causal relations. We just take it that if one 
does X that Y will follow. And this is the, neither here nor there. That's just the way it is. And it's all for the good. We consider, um, and we, we touched on this toward the end of uh, the talk yesterday, we consider as well uh, through the uh, a virtue that's annexed to prudence called nomen, we, we consider what um, the rules or laws governing some domain of action are. And we consider that we ought to act in accordance with those rules or laws insofar as they're just. There's a lot. That's another lecture for another day. We engage in foresight. We ask about, um, if, I if I were to pursue this course of action, what might happen? What, what am I seeing? What am I not seeing? What's liable to follow from this course of action? And how might those consequences be advantageous or otherwise? And finally, we engage in caution. We look for false semblances of right means. You know, sometimes the right thing, what seems like the right thing to do in pursuit of some end, it's really not. It's not. And the sources of that distortion are manifold. And so we have to engage in counsel, this first moment of prudence, this first stage. This isn't a solitary exercise. It's something that we very often do in community. We, we look to wise counselors. You know, and a, a wise counselor uh, in one domain of action may be uh, entirely the wrong person to ask in another, you know, if you, if you want to know something, I don't know about like woodworking or rock tumbling, I, I'm not your guy. I'm just not. All right. Following counsel, there is what's called judgment. It's not enough simply to examine and gather up all the rel relevant possibilities before us, we have to render some judgment about those possibilities. We have to determine which of them is best, or if there are, if, or if it seems that there are more, there, there are several courses before us, we have to find some criteria by which to choose one or the other. And sometimes there's more than one route. To the, to the end in view. And then finally, there is, in addition to judgment, a moment of command. This is the moment where you actually put counsel and judgment to action. You apply it to the, to the world, to your life, to uh, the, the, entanglements and the opportunities before you. And 
this is just one this is just i think a very helpful way of breaking down what a large part of human life is about it's about that Here's some good news. Uh, there are, there is a kind of prudence, according to Thomas, we call it acquired prudence, that is caused by the exercise of prudence. You become more prudent, you become better at taking counsel, at rendering judgment, and setting all this into action, the more you take counsel and render judgment and set these things into action. And this is a painful process that um, often involves quite a lot of failure at first. The good news is God does not uh, justify you, um, make you a, uh, his child by grace, does not give you the Holy Spirit as a down payment or at your inheritance and then leave you to your own devices. Now, the good news is just, it's like kind of bottomless. There's more good news than that. God also gives you what Thomas calls infused prudence. Comes packaged with charity um, in baptism. It's renewed. Uh, through the sacraments of um, the Eucharist and reconciliation. This is, when I saw this the first time in the, the, the Summa, I, I almost fell out of my chair. I thought, Eureka! Thomas says that when, every time we um, go to confession, receive the sacrament of reconciliation, we are infused with prudence. And because I'm a fool, I thought, God, on point, once again. All right. This is something we need. This is good. This is good news. But uh, this prudence, infused prudence, it differs from the acquired sort insofar as it pertains not merely or principally to the kind of practical deliberation we do when we're thinking about how best to live um, lives as creatures of one sort, but also... And more importantly, when we're it perfects our capacity for deliberating about how to live lives ordered to God, our supernatural end. You know, the font of all goodness, <laughs> the one who has, has made us and called us to himself and has promised us um, an eternity of, uh, uh, of something that can only be described as a eternal feast. Wow. So that's the good news. Now, some less than good news. And this is all worth drawing out because I think we human beings, even, um, even um, under the regime of grace, we live east of Eden and we await our final redemption and we are very good at hiding from ourselves our weaknesses 
you know, it's, it's, I talked a moment ago about memory, about, you know, I think it was, was it Einstein who said it was just kind of insanity to try the same thing over and over and over again? Well, I do that, you know, and I bet you do too. All right. Uh, what's up with that? It's like, Augustine, what were you doing destroying all those pears? I don't know. Or St. Paul, wretched man that I am, I don't do the thing I want to do. I do the thing I don't want to do. Who will save me from this body of death? Ah! What are the limits of reason? What are the inherent problems that we face that cannot be overcome even when prudence is maximally perfected? Okay, so here is a sequence of answers to that question drawn from Thomas's discussion of prudence and the virtues annexed to it in the second part of the Summa. And I've divided these, as you can see on your handout, into basically two sets. One has to do with what, a, what with our just our finitude. The other has to do with our fallenness. Here's one. How about this? Just sheer contingency. You know, the ordinary fact that prudence is about contingent singulars and human beings having finite powers of reason simply cannot arrive at certainty about many things such that, as Thomas says here, prudence cannot be so great as to be devoid of all worry or concern. You know, just a kind of low-grade sense of agitation, wondering where we're wondering, you know, is this all going to fall apart? How about extenuating circumstances when it happens, as Thomas says, that sometimes things have to be done which are not covered by common rules of action. Okay? If someone, someone, uh, here's a classic example that Thomas refers to, someone entrusts to you their weapon, and they haven't given it to you, they've entrusted it to you, and, they, and they're asking for it back. And when they come to ask for it back, it's clear that they've, you know, had a snootful um, or have lost their mind temporarily. Or, and now the question is, um, should I give this mad person this weapon? Probably not. Uh, that's a vivid example of, of a moment in which we have common rules that apply in the vast majority of cases, but in certain circumstances simply have to be um, subordinated to different judgments. And that takes some working out. And look, it's easy as we sit here in the cool um, light of reason, as we take a step out of the hurly-burly of life and 
think together about prudence, it's very easy to imagine that our lives um, are, well, kind of like this, that our deliberations can simply just be stretched out over time. We might have you know, a nice leisurely uh, morning to think about what ought to be done. But in fact, sometimes you have to make decisions rather quickly. Sometimes they're, you know, a lot of times, thanks be to God, those are very small decisions, but sometimes you, you have to act. Sometimes things impose themselves upon us that, that require us to do something now. How are you going to do that? I mean, you don't have a time machine, so you can't go backwards and learn and know everything that you needed to learn and know in order to choose the right course. Okay, we're also, we also just suffer from uh, kind of, um, well, from various degrees of ignorance, sometimes through, th through no fault of our own, we are unaware of those universal judgments by which we ought to um, determine what to do in particular circumstances. Now, this is, uh, this I think is something that is very often easily rectified, but there are moments of genuine ignorance where we're not, you know, there are plenty of moments in which we, we don't know what um, we ought to do in such and such circumstance because we don't want to know what to do. It's better, we think, this is, comes from the, um, uh, the, 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 what Paul calls the old man. Um, the old man thinks it's better that we not know what to do so that we can go on doing what we know we ought not to do. Uh, and then there are just calculative errors. You know, you can make mistakes. And even though the wisest among us sometimes do. Call that, call those limits the limits of finitude and think now about the limits that pertain more to our fallenness. There are, in addition to, well, in addition to just kind of good old fashioned cognitive confusion, there's also the fact that we live in a world um, through our own making in many circumstances, but also through no fault of our own, that is shot through with semblances of good. Things that seem good, but are mingled with evil. As Thomas says here, on account of the great variety of these matters, good is often hindered by evil, and evil has the appearance of good. Now look, I'm not stressing all these things in order to undermine the, uh, the truly amazing power of the human faculty of reason. But uh, th these, are, these things, as I'll keep going here, are worth pointing out because they bring into focus our need for counsel that um, carries us beyond the limits of our own uh, defects. In addition to these semblances of good, Thomas mentions implications in evil. You know, 
I think it was in 2019, the most Googled term was complicity. You heard that term? It's like the idea that everything you do is somehow implicated in something you shouldn't do so that even when you're doing what you ought, you're doing something that you ought not to do. It's completely bogus. But that's the idea. It's paralyzing. Nevertheless, there are some circumstances, there are some ends and some means to ends that are indeed unsuitable, unworthy of pursuit, condemnable, or simply infelicitous by reason of the combination of some circumstances that indeed implicate us in things that we ought not to be implicated in. We, there are ways of participating in others' activities that we ought to avoid. And those kinds of, of participation are not always easily avoided. How are you going to do that? What about the number and variety of evils? Those that occur not uh, frequently, but rarely and by chance. These, Thomas says, since they're infinite in number, cannot be grasped by reason, nor is man able to take precautions against them. He goes on to say, the best one can do in, in the face of calamity of this kind is through prior deliberation, prepare oneself for the impact of calamity. And then there is what Thomas calls laziness. You know, sometimes he says, I'm quoting, after judging aright, think about this, after judging rightly, so counsel, check, judgment, check. And then when it comes to command, what does he say? We delay to execute or we execute negligently or inordinately. Sometimes we don't even do that because we refuse to take counsel out of the recalcitrant, lingering pride that we've inherited from our first parents. Frequently and reverently, Thomas says, a man must carefully apply his mind to the teachings of the learned neither neglecting them through laziness nor despising them through pride. Sometimes, and this is, the, this is a difficult thing about contending with one's own sin, sometimes we can't, uh, by our own efforts, bring ourselves to a place of humility where we can accept the counsel that we are given. So we need help. So it's in light of all these limits, these difficulties, that the gift of counsel is necessary. What is it? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that we receive with charity, that which rectifies our imperfection in the face of the inherent fear and uncertainty in human deliberation. 
Thomas says, I'm quoting, no man is altogether self-sufficient in matters of prudence. And then he goes on to say, and therefore, in the inquiry of counsel, a man needs to be directed by God, who comprehends all things, all those de defects, the limits of finitude and fallenness are uh, in no wise present in God. He's perfect. We are directed by God, says Thomas, who comprehends all things. This is done by the gift of counsel through which a man is directed, as it were, by counsel received from God. Okay, so what is the gift of counsel about? It's about, Thomas says, things that are necessary for salvation. The whole wide panoply of activities, projects, and pursuits in your, in your life, which order you and others to your end in God and which are necessary for pursuing your end in God. That's what the gift of counsel is about. That's how wide its ambit is. To say that is to say that the gift of counsel is a gift that God gives that leaves no stone unturned. There's nothing that falls outside its domain. There's nothing for which Despite your insufficiencies, you are left um, in the lurch with respect to. There's always help, always counsel available. It pertains, as Thomas says elsewhere, to all things ordered to eternal life. So I'll quote here, counsel considered as a gift of the Holy Spirit guides us in all things which are ordered to the end of eternal life, whether they be necessary or for, or for salvation or not. You know, one of the joys of being a Christian is that we are given the opportunity to, to do things in the kingdom of God that we don't have to do, but we get to do them. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Some of it's just all joy. It's, 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 a, it's a, an invitation to participate in the fullness of Christ's own way of life. And there's counsel for that too. Then Thomas says, I think, and, and along these lines, although counsel, quoting again, directs in all the acts of virtue, it does so in a special way in works of mercy. See, what, see where I'm going? There is counsel available to you in your work with the Thomistic Institute. It's a work of mercy. And that's what the gift of counsel is especially about. Okay, it's mode. How does it work? Prudence, says Thomas, which entails the rectitude of reason, is perfected and helped most of all insofar as it's led and moved by the Holy Spirit. But how is it that God leads us? How is it that we're moved? Well, 
Precisely because we are talking here about counsel in respect to the contingency and singularity and infinite richness of human experience, we can only give very general answers to this question. Here's one thing we can say for certain, that however it is that God counsels us, he does this without violating our free will. This is, the, this, this is just an extrapolation of the Thomist maxim that grace does not destroy nature but perfects it. You are a creature endowed with free will, which is a faculty of will of, or of reason and will. And it, will, it can be no part of counsel for God to operate you like a puppet. God's counsel, however it shows up in our life, will have to work in accordance with and by perfecting our faculties, not upending them or uh, muting them. As in all the gifts, the gift of counsel, according to Thomas, works by what he calls a kind of divine prompting. He says here that the, those who are not sufficient in the inquiry of counsel require counsel from those who are wiser. This occurs by a kind of prompting, a kind of instigation, a, a movement. There's a a passage from Jordan of Saxony's Labellus on the beginning of the Order of Preachers where he describes uh, what Thomas later comes to call the gift of counsel. He's describing St. Dominic's way of deliberation, and he uses a very interesting phrase. It's, and most translators have just kind of glossed over it and, and paraphrased it, but what he literally says is, it was as though the Lord were giving Dominic nods like this, this way. Uh, 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 or what do you, or it can also be rendered a beckoning. You know what a beckoning is? A beckoning goes like this. I'm over here and you're over there and I go this way. That's what he says. Sometimes I, I think it is like that. Sometimes. More often, I think, and I think that Thomas thinks, the gift of counsel operates by quelling our anxiety after the work of reason has done what it can do. You know, sometimes we just come to the end of ourselves, the end of what our best deliberations um, can muster and the end of what the best counsel we can gather um, can give us. And we're still left with uncertainty and doubt. Is it this way or this way? And Thomas says in such moments, the Holy Spirit will quell our anxiety about one of those options. Well, we, as we say, I think today, or more colloquially, he gives us a sense of peace. I want to just give you a couple of additional 
uh, well, let's call them handrails for thinking about how the gift of counsel works, and then let's just talk about this for a little bit, okay? One, uh, Thomas, throughout his corpus, is constantly exhorting his readers, you and me, to the meditation of Scripture. And he gives concrete advice right there in his account of prudence about how we are to go about committing things to memory. Memory is a part of prudence. He says, you've got to go about it. There's have, there have to be four things. One, you have to be deliberate about it. Two, you have to join up some passage of scripture or some wise saying with some uh, suitable but odd image. So it sticks in the memory. And then you have to frequently uh, meditate on that passage or wise saying in conjunction with that image. And fourth, you have to set all that in relation to other things that are worth committing to memory. What's this do? Well, one way I've thought about it, you'll know immediately that this is not Thomas's analogy, but I think of it a little bit like what it must be, what, what it must feel like to sew a hot air balloon together. I, I've never done this, and if you're looking for help with that, Again, I'm the wrong guy. But imagine with me for a moment um, that hot air balloons are sewed together. I mean, they, they're patched together. We're putting together this, this thing that will be later inflated. And every, but every now and again, so I'm patching it together, I'm sewing it together, and every now and again, it gets gassed up and it moves. And the memorization of, of scripture, the committing of scripture to one's own person is like that. It's like assembling the material that the spirit then gasses up. And that's a, you know, this is, a, this is I think, apropos. The spirit is what? Like the wind. It blows. It, you could be carried along by it. But we're, we're meant to... Um, we're meant to fill our minds with the truth of Holy Scripture so that the Lord can speak to us through it. This is part of the work of counsel because it's part of the work of prudence. And any doubts about this can be immediately dispatched by cracking open any of Thomas's commentaries on Scripture. Um, Secondly, I think, uh, well, there are just moments in Thomas's corpus and in, the, and in the works of his contemporaries that emphasize very strongly that, that the, the liturgy of the church and the, the rhythms of the divine office have been given to us by the Holy Spirit as a means of counsel, not 
principally as a means of worship, but also as a way in which God speaks to us in our concrete uh, circumstances. And finally, I, I, I want to emphasize, because Thomas does in, in so many places, that none of this is meant to happen outside the channels of ordinary human counsel. You know, it's part of the gift of counsel very often that we are we receive advice or direction from the Holy Spirit through the words of other human beings. So um, what the gift of counsel, as Thomas understands it, is not is a license to you know sequester yourself and um, begin you know um, ruminating on your own private revelations. It's a uh, quite the contrary. Uh, and here too, we have to remember we are social creatures made for community with one another. And it's no part of the gift of counsel to undo that. It rather perfects it. Um, I'd just like to ask a more practical question um, regarding actually the sacrament of confirmation. So I feel like if it's not a universal experience, it's probably like pretty close to universal where a lot of people have really less than sufficient confirmation prep or just really um, just not helpful. I remember in um, college, I took a Christian sacraments class and they described confirmation as the sacrament without a theology, um, which always kind of frustrated me because I thought like, surely somebody knows what confirmation is. Um, and probably Aquinas <laughs> does. Um, so just in a, in a very practical way, could you describe for us, like if somebody were to ask you, as far as the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what happens with the gifts of the Holy Spirit when you receive confirmation? Why is it not just like a graduation ceremony out of the church as a lot of people kind of treat it as? And then also kind of responding to the question that I've heard from people um, as like, or the question of if these gifts of the Holy Spirit are so important, why do we wait so long for people to receive confirmation? And how can people live good Christian lives? Say you're confirmed like I was like a junior in high school. I've heard people ask, like, why didn't you receive those gifts sooner if you know they wanted you to live a good Christian life? Does that make sense? That's a that's a very good question. And I I I can say a couple of things, but my sense is that I, I ought to defer this question to uh, Father Dominic, uh, who, I, who I think is pro- who has thought more about the sacraments than I have. So I'll just say a couple of things that I'm pretty sure are not false. <laughs> yeah. The sacraments are the ordinary means of grace. But God is not bound by the sacraments and they are not meant they are not meant to exhaust um, or uh, I'll just put it that way exhaust our encounter with um, and the, our 
the increase, our encounter with grace and the increase of the gifts. Confirmation in the very in the simplest sense, as I'm sure you know, is a sacrament of strengthening. And part of the reason um, I I, I think this is right to say. Someone can help me in a moment. Um, part of the reason why, and maybe the perhaps the main reason why it's delayed. Um, in, I, what, when were you confirmed? I was a junior in high school. Okay, that's a little later than um, than than I would have expected. If uh, for many people, I mean, I was confirmed when I was like thirty six. So, <laughs> okay. but um, part of the reason is it's a. Um, You've reached now the age of reason where the gifts and the virtues can be more deeply eradicated in you, rooted in you, and strengthened. So that's part of the logic. But uh, I'll just say uh, briefly, you know, it's not as though we're meant to receive the sacrament of confirmation and then, you know, we've got everything we need. We are, we are strengthened precisely so that we can recognize our weakness and cry out to God for more and more of him and his help. There can I throw out a few please, quick yeah. ideas? One is, um, and it's maybe an important kind of foundational point, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given with sanctifying grace. So according to Aquinas, everyone who has sanctifying grace has those gifts. They're really, in a sense, a, uh, an element of the whole package of sanctifying grace. So sanctifying grace elevates the soul. It's rooted in the essence of the soul, gives the soul a, a sharing in the divine nature. So it gives your human nature a supernatural elevation to share in a higher nature, the divine nature. And you're, as, as Dr. Idol explained yesterday, your rational nature, your soul has powers like intellect and will. So when you're whole nature receives a participation in a higher nature is elevated supernaturally by the gift of sanctifying grace. It has implications for also your powers, which it's, it's as if that the gift unfolds into your powers. So there you have the virtues, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are additional habitual dispositions, which are unlike the virtues, although like them in a certain sense, as Dr. Idle discussed yesterday. Okay, so that's an important initial preface to say, you don't get the gifts for the first time at confirmation. Um, how, does, how do the sacraments, we might say all of the sacraments, relate to sanctifying grace? Well, the sacraments efficaciously cause grace what is the sacrament that efficaciously causes sanctifying grace? First of all, baptism. Okay, is it possible to have sanctifying grace if you're not baptized? Yes. God sometimes gives that to people, but the normal way is it begins with baptism. He can give the grace of baptism without the sacrament of baptism. Then, if you fall into grave sin, you lose sanctifying grace. How is it restored? Confession is the normal way. Can he give you back sanctifying grace without you going to sac a sacramental confession? Yes, but that's not the normal way that he does it. What does confirmation then do? 
Confirmation involves a strengthening. It's another aspect of the gift of grace. So it efficaciously helps you to bear witness to the faith. That's Aquinas' account. And traditionally, it was associated with baptism. It's supposed to be, in a sense, I mean, originally, it's conferred with baptism, although it's a distinct grace and a distinct sacrament. So it can be conferred separately. It's reserved to the bishop. Why did it develop over time that in the West, confirmation is conferred later? It's not conferred later in the East. It's conferred later in the West because the West wanted to keep it as the sacrament that the bishop normally would confer. But we didn't want to make children wait for the bishop to come to town to baptize them. So priests would baptize, and then they would wait for the bishop to arrive to confer confirmation. And that evolved into the situation we have now, where often people are confirmed at a later time. But it doesn't, it's not associated with like your mature acceptance of the faith. That's a very big mistake. Um, yeah, so often people, and even the catechists who are teaching the confirmation classes will say things like, oh, this is your sacrament, you know, whereby you choose as an adult that you want to be Catholic. That is completely false, absolutely wrong. In fact, totally backwards. Because confirmation is a sacrament where you are confirmed by God. You do not confirm God. God <laughs> confirms you. And that's what's happening. It's a ceiling to strengthen you for bearing witness to the faith. Yeah. Aristotle says that what you do through your friend, you in some sense do yourself. That's my answer. And thank you. I, um, I had a question um, going back to prudence. Um, so uh, sort of encompassing moral, moral motivations. Um, so it's my understanding that like a virtue is a virtue because it cannot be misused. Um, but it seems to me that like the, the virtuous robber, right? Like there, there, there could be a situation which, you know, instead of, um, instead of the universal principle of, of, you know, avoiding injustice, we have the universal principle of, um, avoiding ridicule or having the semblance of, of, of virtue, right? Something like, uh, something like a hypocrite might have. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how we think about someone who is, uh, who is really good at imitating virtue, even though he or she may not be virtuous. Um, would, would, would we call that, that skill, um, prudence? Would we say that they are, they are, they are prudent in their, um, you know, ability to, to, to work towards a, universal principle that, that is not good? Um, and if not, like what, what would we call that? And, and what is sort of the concrete distinction between, the concrete practical distinction between prudence and whatever that is? Okay, yeah, good. So prudence is about ordering means to ends. And it's prudence truly so-called when the ends in view are good ends. Uh, are you old enough to have seen the movie Ocean's Eleven? Bunch of handsome guys stealing stuff. They're really good at it. Yeah? Wise thieves. Practically wise thieves. They, they have it all sorted. And um, you might say that there's a kind of prudence um, at work here, but it's false prudence. 
It's uh, the kind of wisdom that the Apostle James um, and then many others in his wake call earthly wisdom. All right? Uh, You're asking a question, uh, I think, mainly about the, the capital vice of vainglory. Capital vice is a... Do you know what a capital vice is? Here's a quick, cap, here's a quick uh, lesson on a capital vice. A capital vice is a vice that's so pregnant with mischief and, and wickedness that it gives birth to other vices, which um, have the goal of helping that vice secure the thing at once. So if I am uh, in the throes of vainglory, what I want is to be praised. And I want so badly to be praised that um, if, I, if, if this vice, vainglory, is entrenched and it's in, um, then it's very likely, and especially over time, that I will develop other vices like envy. Envy is a vice that is, a, is consequent to, it also happens to be a capital vice, which is, so vainglory is a problem. If you've got a capital vice that gives birth to another capital vice, you know, you run away, run from it. You know, really. Um, envy is the is this vice that makes us rejoice over others' downfall or despise their success because we think, usually wrongly, that it somehow detracts from our own um, excellence. All right. Um, another thing that comes downstream of vainglory um, is a kind of false prudence. Uh, you know, and this, this is the real, the, the trouble with vainglory and the trouble with pride is that it takes every virtuous deed and turns it into an opportunity for self-aggrandizing um, attention getting. And the more vain you become, the better you get at that, which means the more it's concealed. All right. So there's a there is a kind of I mean there there is a kind of false prudence that is generated by uh, capital vices like the ones I'm describing that um, do the work of finding opportunity for the display of pub, of virtue in public. I mean, basically, like Twitter is. In, in large part, a just a, a, a playground for vanity. Let me tell you today about what I'm super angry about. You won't believe how righteous I am. I'm so mad today about this. Mm. That's, that, that's what you're asking about, but, but you may have something more specific in mind. Yeah, maybe if I can just like, um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe if I can just like provide. So, so I don't know. I I'm not intimately familiar with these things, but I've been told that like the leaders of of say you know, drug cartels are very very smart people, and they're very good at adapting and finding means to you know whatever ends that they you know are yeah. Are. And so I'm I'm curious, you know, like 
say you know someone like that were to have a you know radical conversion, right? And it, it would seem to me that they're I'm worried that um, it would seem to me that their their skills of adapting you know means to ends, right, would still be very very strong, even though those ends would hopefully be reordered. And I understand that oh, I they see. also might be you know open to like the gift of counsel and things like that. But in terms of of, of the virtue of prudence, right, of, of adapting of adapting means to first evil ends and now good ends, you know, what what practically changes when, when that conversion takes place and when their ends are reordered, if that uh, makes sense. I mean, you're asking a question, it's a very good one, and one like the one of the questions asked yesterday, it has to do with some uh, inside baseball among Thomas about the status of um, habits with virtuous and vicious um, that uh, in the light of grace. So you might be asking something like, is this false prudence, uh, which is exclusively ordered to towards say, you know, smuggling drugs or 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 theft, is it? That is it downgraded to a kind of disposition which then gets upgraded um, and transformed? Um, I don't think so. It, it, but it's certainly the case that every time we exercise our rational faculties, insofar as we're exercising them in accordance with right judgment. So suppose you have a bad end in mind, something you ought not do in any circumstance, but you are particularly adept at doing it. There isn't, nevertheless, there a part of your rational faculty, um, a, a set of operations that you become adept at, at the ordering of, I mean, it's a kind of logical um, relation. And uh, yeah, we see this all the time that, that, you know, God knows how to take, make the best out of the worst that the world can offer us. Look at the Apostle Paul, for example. He's really good at what he does and what he does when he encounters the risen Lord Jesus Christ is radically changed. And some of what made him really good at what he was doing um, is also what makes him now good at um, being ambassador of the gospel. <clears throat>